Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Defense contractors are parsing out a nearly 250-page proposed rule. It landed sort of like a lump of coal on Christmas Eve. It's all about a program known as the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC. At the least, you should read the proposal and prepare comments. For more, we turn to procurement attorney Eric Crucius, a partner at Holland and Knight. And Eric, good to have you in studio. Your copy is only about 80 pages because you printed in three columns. That's right. You know, I always try for efficiency when I'm moving around. <laughs> right, because you have the full version out there and it completely fills a accordion folder. And, well, let's begin at the beginning. What should contractors be doing now with this thing? We've said for a long time that contractors should be paying attention to what they know, CMMC, Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, as you said, because this is coming. And I think this is an important step that the Department of Defense did by issuing the proposed rule. They expect the final rule to be out sometime next year. And what it does is it really makes contractors um, certify that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. There are already requirements uh, for various FAR and DFARS clauses that require contractors to protect uh, different kinds of information. What CMMC does is, is give DOD assurance that those contractors are actually doing that through a self-certification uh, or a third-party certification. Now, the CMMC was first proposed four years or five years ago, and does the new rule pretty much mirror the way it was laid out originally, or are there some significant changes in what they're actually proposing for the CMMC 2.0, let's put it that way? Let me give you a great lawyer answer and say both. <laughs> so some of it is, is, is the same and some of it's different. So for level one, which is for the protection of federal contract information, that's no longer going to be a third-party certification. That's now a self-certification. And that's great because it's less expensive. It's more flexible for small businesses. But it also opens up potential False Claims Act liability for those small businesses because they're self-certifying to something instead of getting a third party to bless it, essentially. But they do have to have those controls in place. That's right. That hasn't changed. And the controls have been narrowed down across all the levels a little bit to take out some DOD-specific controls that were just germane to the CMMC program. Now it's really all stuff that contractors already have to do. And when you talk about level two, that mostly remains a third party certification. So when they released kind of CMMC 2.0 and announced that they were going to go through this rulemaking process, they said, well, level two is going to be a split level with some folks getting a self-certification, some folks getting a third-party certification. But they they largely predict that most contractors will need and want to get a third-party certification. They put the numbers as uh, more than 76,000 defense contractors getting a third-party certification under level two and just 4,000 uh, getting a self-certification. I think that's pretty accurate. I would even say it's maybe weighted even should be weighted even more and heavily of third-party certs because if you're a contractor with controlled and classified information, you're going to want to get that third-party certification because you don't know what the next contract is going to require. Right. So this apparatus of having third-party assessors that would report back to some CMMC office in the sky, <laughs> that that's still in place. That's right. There's still the accreditation body. It's a nonprofit that was set up for the purpose of kind of laying out the ground rules, training the assessors, putting coursework out, kind of blessing the third-party assessment organizations that are going to do the assessments, all that stuff. And they kind of sit in between the Department of Defense and the contractors because DOD has essentially said in their rulemaking, we don't have the capacity to ramp up like this, but you know we hope that some third-party will. And these uh, 
cyber accreditation body has done a good job of, of ramping up. They've added a lot of third-party assessors. They've added a lot of folks in other categories. You know, it's a little bit of a slower go, I think, than some would like, but it just reflects the nature of how complicated this is. And nobody has to be assessed yet. You know, that's going to come sometime next year. So the hope is that as as more companies become aware and want to get assessed, there will be a similar increase in, in those who are capable of getting those assessments done. So in other words, DOD becomes almost like a occupant of a building. The contractors are the builders, and these third-party assessors are like the building inspectors. That's right. That's exactly right. Because the DOD still has to be the architect also. They, they're the ones that say, this is, these are the rules, this is what you have to do, and that accreditation body is making sure that folks are doing it. We're speaking with attorney Eric Crucius. He's a partner at Holland & Knight. What do you feel is commentable about this? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's anything that should surprise a contractor. Even I'm surprised it took 250 pages to say what we just said in about 1,000 words. <laughs> so is there anything controversial in your view? I wouldn't say there's controversial, but there are some things to think about. Uh, one is how are international companies going to kind of comply with this? Um, a lot of DOD supply chain is overseas. Whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's still the fact of the matter. And there's, it's a complicating factor to try to get those assessors to, to do assessments overseas. There are some countries that wouldn't allow that. Um, so, you know, that, that kind of is an open question in this proposed rule, but there's a promise of a ramp up. Another is a lot of contractors, especially smaller ones, are using third parties to host their information or manage their services, manage their security. You know, how those are going to be treated. They did lay out for cloud service providers. Um, the standards, but for those managed service providers that do more than a cloud service provider, it's not entirely clear what they need to do. Will they need a CMMC Level 2 assessment? That's possible based on the reading of this, but I think that has to be clarified a little bit, so that's that's certainly something that could be open for comment. And, of course, I think a lot of folks are going to want to comment on the cost of this. This is not an inexpensive endeavor, but DOD said over and over again in this rulemaking hey, these are things you already have to do so that we're not putting a new requirement on you. We're just putting a new verification of that requirement on you. But even so, it's still very expensive, and I think a lot of folks are going to want to comment on that, though I think DOD did a much better job this time around kind of understanding that cost and explaining that cost out in gruesome detail, actually, sure. through the rulemaking. And there's going to be a lot of different situations technically. I mean, if you were dealing with a cloud supplier, a cloud commercial cloud computing supplier, they're supplying IT in the first place and whatever controls they have inside their firewalls and their clouds, sometimes that's proprietary and it's going to be hard to get. That's different if you're a supplier of castings for landing gear and you might be a you know, subcontractor or even a prime in some cases and your information systems to operate your foundry and to take in the orders, et cetera, and buy your metal. That's a whole different setup. That's a little bit simpler than dealing with, say, a cloud. Right. I, I, it's it's interesting because I think, you know, I've talked to numerous companies about this and numerous companies who have tried to comply with the DFARS clause that's out there already, 252-204-7012, and each one presents a different problem because nobody has set up their system the same way. Each industry is completely different. Um, so what they're trying to do is come out with something that is neutral to all those different industries, and that's something that can be implemented across numerous industries. Whether they have succeeded or not remains to be seen, but I could tell you that it is there are complications when implementing even just the controls as they are now, um, because companies have these bespoke systems, and the different industries require different things. So hopefully as time goes on, there'll be more guidance that's out there and more information that's out there from the Department of Defense and others that can help those companies through those problems because 
one of the big problems are these small businesses that do some business with the Department of Defense, but DOD obviously doesn't want them to run away because of this new requirement. So kind of engaging with those small businesses and ensuring that they have the tools necessary to get compliant and get a certification without breaking the bank is going to be of paramount importance over the next year or two. And cybersecurity has always been a matter of balancing between compliance and checkoff, which this is all about, and actual cybersecurity, which is protecting the data and the secrets of the Defense Department. Somewhere in there, do you get the sense that their ultimate goal is to make sure that China doesn't steal the plans from the next F-35? Absolutely. Because <laughs> I think you know, DOD's position for years now has been that was way too easy <laughs> for them to do that. And I get DOD's position here. I mean, I understand that they are, do business with these contractors, they trust this information to them. They don't want this information to show up overseas in China or another country. Um, it just has to be balanced with kind of narrowly tailoring to what is absolutely required to do that. And on the other hand, contractors have an incentive to have good cybersecurity. They don't want the proprietary information leaking out too. So hopefully this will spur on those who are somewhat reluctant to do so um, to actually engage in good cybersecurity and protect their own information. Because with cybersecurity breaches, they're increasing exponentially. You know, I deal with those all the time. And uh, it costs a lot more to to deal with a breach than to prevent one. And once this rule is finalized after the comments, people have 60 days, I guess, and it becomes a rule, becomes a DFAR situation. Right. Do you feel that this will engender a lot more compliance activity on contractors, or will it be one time around, you're good to go? I think there'll be a lot more compliance. And this these certifications last for three years. Um, so what you'll have happen is this continuous cycle of contractors needing to get a third-party certification. And especially in the beginning, that's going to be difficult because there'll be some early leaders who get a certification early on. There'll be some who are wait a little bit longer because they don't have to. And they'll be competing for that same time with the certified third-party assessment organization. So those C-3POs are going to be especially busy, I'd say, the first five years or so as companies are ramping up for the first time and some that are going through the process a second time. Let's start a company. Three CPOs are us. That's right. I'm, I'm game. <laughs> All right. Attorney Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland & Knight. As always, thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. 
Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.